0: morning. It is a joy to be able to share and open up the Word of God with you this morning. Um, we're going to be continuing in 2 Kings this morning, um, so if you want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 23, um, we're going to be looking at part two of King Josiah this morning. And just to get us started, I'm going to read from verses 24 and 25 of 2 Kings chapter 23. It says, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Please pray with me. Dear lord we thank you and praise you for the work of grace that we see recorded in the life of Josiah Lord we are thankful that it is not dependent upon his good works but upon your goodness to him um, lord we're, we're grateful for that because we know that is the way that you are at work in our lives as well through through your goodness and your graciousness towards us uh, Lord we pray that as we look at this passage this morning that you would um, just help to uh, cause us to see the ways that we are called to respond with uh, of obedience uh, to your word, uh, Lord, that you would even uh, cause our, our hearts and our minds to be centered on you and your word, um, that you would um, allow us to see the ways that, that we would not only hear the word this morning, um, but be able to leave here as doers of the word. Um, so Lord, we thank you for uh, the faithful encouragement of a, a king such as Josiah, Lord, the way that it points us towards your grace and your goodness, ultimately given to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So what's in it for me? That's a a question that perhaps at one time or another uh, we've all asked. Maybe it was just as a joke. Uh, Maybe it was uh, out of genuine curiosity, wondering what am I going to get out of this situation. Maybe it reveals a a self-centered attitude in our our hearts. Um, I don't know that that's always the case, that it's revealing self-centeredness, although maybe that's definitely a question to ask if that's where our mind turns first. Uh, But I do know one place that it would be inappropriate to ask the question, what's in it for me? would be when we're confronted with the truth of God's word, uh, specifically when we're called to respond with obedience, to, to ask the question of what's in it for me, what am I going to get out of obeying God and responding to him, would not be an appropriate question to ask. Um, one place that we might see that kind of creeping into society's religious views is in the sense of the prosperity gospel. The idea that God has saved us to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise, that our salvation and our faith is, is rooted in what am I going to get out of it, or if I do good things, or if I have enough faith that God's going to provide for me. It's certainly a false gospel, and it certainly reveals a self-centered attitude. Um, but to be fair, I don't, don't know that everyone that embraces that is, is necessarily self-centered. Perhaps it's just embracing false teaching or uh, not understanding God's truth well enough. Um, but whatever it is, that sort of line of thinking is going to get us into trouble, if that's our thought. If our thought is that, that when things are going well, that that's God's, a sign of God's blessing, or when things aren't going well, that's a sign that I'm doing something wrong, uh, it's going to get us into trouble. If that's, if that's your line of thinking, then what happens when you lose your job, or things aren't going well at home, or the grades aren't good, or you don't have enough to make ends meet? Well, if you're believing that your what you get in God's blessing is based upon your faith in that situation, then you might be left to question one of two things. Either am I unfaithful or is God unfaithful? And now maybe for most of us here, that's not the the crux of the issue. That's not what we're, we're outright thinking. Uh, I would hope that we've not embraced the prosperity gospel, but we've embraced the true gospel. But I think that line of thinking might still carry over ever so subtly into what we think and how we respond. Uh, Maybe for us it looks just, like I said, a little bit more subtle in the, the line of thinking that when things are going well, when I have everything that I need, when everyone's healthy, when relationships are going good, that I'm doing something right, that God's blessing me because of my obedience or because of my church attendance or because of my devotional life or my prayer life. And while those things would certainly be God's blessings in our lives, Uh, Maybe we have to wonder, uh, maybe not draw such a a clear connection between thinking that I'm the one that has brought that and deserved that. Maybe we see it more evidently on the negative side, that we're thinking that when things aren't going well, when I lose a job, when the kids are misbehaving, when I'm not getting the grades that I'd like to be getting, when I don't have the money to make ends meet, when I get a diagnosis from the doctor that's not positive, when a loved one passes away, Thinking that, is this God's discipline in my life? Is there some sin that I'm committing that God is trying to root out? And, you know, that is a possibility. We do know that God disciplines those he loves. But sometimes we can let that cross into thinking that maybe I did something to deserve this. Maybe this is God's judgment for some sin in my life. Maybe there's something that I need to stop doing in order for God to stop giving me judgment and to give me blessing instead. And maybe that's not the mindset we have every single time a situation like that comes up in our lives. Maybe that's not where our mind goes every single time. But I think if, if we're honest, most of us have probably had that thought cross our minds at least once before. But in this morning's passage, we're going to see a, a positive example from King Josiah in the way that he responds to the Word of God that's going to help us to, to think through that question of, uh, and not, not approach it of what's in it for me, um, but to approach God's Word rightly. So, I want to give you our main point this morning right up front, and that is that Jesus rescues sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience. Jesus rescues sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience. So, from our passage this morning, we're going to see three points point number one, the response to the law, point number two, the reform of the land, and point number three, the rescue of the lost. So point number one, response to the law. Look at me, uh, look at uh, verse tw- uh, chapter 23 with me. We'll start in verse one, but before we read that, just remember the context that this is happening in quick succession to what we've just read in chapter 22, that Josiah had just uh, called for the repairs of the temple. It had led to the book of the law being found in the temple. Uh, he had read that book. He had consulted with a prophetess, and now um, we see him taking action from that. So beginning in verse one of chapter 23, then the king sent... And all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Keep in mind, this book had been, been lost, not as we heard last week for necessarily hundreds of years, but since the reign of his grandfather, King Manasseh. Um, So possibly over 50 years. We know it's been 75 years since the death of of King Hezekiah. Um, So for most of those there, even if there's been the the sense of the law being handed down, maybe through the priests, through the teaching, through the families continuing to to live in obedience, this would certainly be the first time that the nation had heard the king of Israel reading from the book of the law, Um, that they were hearing their king doing what their king should have been doing, which was pointing them towards God and leading them in worship. But note too that the... Uh, reference here changes from Book of the Law in chapter 22 to Book of the Covenant. Now, I don't know that there's a specific reason for that. Commentators kind of differ on is this because it's narrowing in the focus on a specific section of the the law in Deuteronomy. Um, But I think what it definitely highlights for us is what's going to happen in the next couple of verses and focusing in on this covenant language. So keep reading with me as we we continue on in verse 3. The king stood by the pillar. That would be a, a sign of his authority and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. The king enters into a covenant. He enters into a covenant with God. And the interesting thing here is that this is the, the first time throughout First and Second Kings that we've seen a king initiate a covenant with the Lord. Um, we, we did see a priest enter into a covenant on behalf of the king and the people and between God. Um, we have seen kings enter into covenants with their people. and We've seen kings enter into covenants with other kings and other nations, but this is the first time we've seen a king take the initiative to form a covenant with the Lord. And then that verse finishes out, all the people joined in the covenant. Uh, he leads the people in restoring, renewing this covenant with the Lord. Again, he's using his position of authority Uh, to exert his influence for good, for bringing the people back to the worship of God. This is something that the king should have been doing. Every king up to this point should have been doing, should have been leading the people to worship God. This whole situation as he's standing here with the people, leading them into this covenant, I think brings us back to the thought of Deuteronomy um, when we we think of Moses leading the people uh, into a covenant with the Lord. Um, you can turn over to Deuteronomy 28 and, and just follow this train of thinking along with me. But we see at the end of, uh, towards the end of Moses' life and ministry, as he's recounted the law to them, as he's getting ready to, for them to enter into the promised land, he's giving them these final charges. And so in chapter 28, we see blessings for obedience. We see the things that God has said that if you obey my commands and you fulfill this covenant, these are the promises and the blessings I will give you. We see in the second half of 28, the curses for disobedience. If the people forsake that covenant and turn from the law, the things that God is, is going, the judgments that God is going to give on the people. Uh, Moses, though, leads the people into to ratifying this covenant, into entering into saying that, yes, this is something that we, we agree to, this is good, and we are going to uh, submit to God in this manner. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. Um, to see what covenant Moses is leading the people into. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear me, But are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Perhaps this is part of the section that Josiah had read when he heard and had the the book of the law read to him. Perhaps that's what caused him to respond with uh, tearing his clothes and responding in mourning as he recognizes that the people had forsaken that covenant. And instead of choosing blessing and life, they had essentially chosen uh, cursing and, and death that the judgment that God had, had sent to them was was right for him to judge them for their, their sin. But Man- uh, Josiah had also consulted a prophetess. He had confirmed this. He hadn't just read it in the book, but he went and talked to the prophetess. We saw that last week that um, she confirmed that because of Manasseh's sin and leading the nation into idolatry, that God was going to judge the people. He was going to remove them from the land. Um, this was not something that they were going to be able to undo or get themselves out of. And so it's within that context that we see Josiah entering into a covenant with the people. Um, We see that it's not in the context, uh, or it's uh, after having been told uh, as part of that prophecy that because he repented, because he turned um, with mourning to hearing this judgment, that he would be brought uh, to death in peace, that he was not going to see that judgment carried out. That was a similar promise to what his great-grandfather Hezekiah had heard. That he was, this was not going to happen during his days. Hezekiah's response at the time was, "Great, it's not going to happen to me." So if it happens to somebody else, that's their problem, but it's not mine. That's not Josiah's response here. He does not respond with that uh, careless attitude for the people of of Israel and, and for his descendants. But we also see that that the judgment is sure. He's read it in the law. He's had it confirmed by the prophetess. His his covenant is not going to cause. The, the escape from this coming judgment. He's not motivated here by seeking to do God, do good to earn God's favor. Um, he's not approaching this with a what's-in-it-for-me sort of mentality. Because from an earthly perspective, if he was to ask that question, what's in it for me? Well, really, from an earthly perspective, nothing. He's already been told he's going to be spared from the judgment to come, so submitting in obedience isn't going to do anything more for him in that regards. We've also already been told this judgment is sure, it's coming, so to submit in obedience to God is not going to cause them to escape that. So from an earthly perspective, what's in it for, me, for him? Nothing. But that's not the right question. And so again, as we think about that even for ourselves, we see that what this points us to is that it's not about what's in it for me. It's about how are we submitting to God with faithful submission and obedience. So Jesus rescues sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience. His concern is the glory of God not just is he obeying to escape judgment or to get something that he wants. So Josiah is faithfully submitting himself to God. He's accepting the consequences for the nation's actions, for their sinfulness, for, for not submitting and obeying the law of God. Um, and this should pause, could give us pause to, to just stop and ask the question of what does that look like in our lives for faithful submission? When we're confronted with the truth of God's word, Are we looking at it as a moment to barter with God to try and get something that we want? Or are we responding out of a a motivation of love and appreciation for God's goodness and faithfulness in our lives? Maybe this looks like if this idea of bartering might look in our lives like these sorts of prayers. God, if you get me a better paying job, then I'll use the extra money for your glory or to give to missions or the church. God, if you give me good health, and, and money to retire early. I'll use that extra time in the retirement to better serve you, God. If you resolve the issues I'm having with my family or in different relationships, I'll I'll use that time, uh, extra time to serve more in the church. God, if you give me good grades, especially if I don't have to study, and get me into the right college, I'll go to church. I'll serve you, God. If you get me out of this tough situation that I'm in, I won't fill in the blank commit that sin again or or forsake doing the thing that you've called me to do, is our initial thought, what do I get out of it? What is this obedience going to bring me? Is it going to bring me blessing or help me avoid the curse? Or are we looking to faithfully submit to God and his word? So Jesus told us that the the motivation for obeying God's commandments is that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love for God is certainly what motivated Josiah to respond with faithful submission and obedience in this manner and it's a love for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that that should motivate and compel us towards faithful submission and obedience and that completely changes our mindset and our thinking instead of approaching it as what am I going to get out of it or seeking to bargain with God in in those moments it would change our mindset to to seek God's will so maybe those prayers look different then. God, whether you keep me in this job or provide me a new one, I will use my work to bring glory to you. God, whether you give me health or take me home or cause me to continue to live with this sickness, I will use that to testify to your healing and your power. God, whether you fix my family issues or not, I'll rejoice that you've adopted me into your family. God, whether you give me good grades or get me into the right school, I'll make it a priority to fellowship with believers and worship you on Sunday. Now, whether or not you help me to avoid the consequences of my actions or get me out of this tough spot I will accept that as your loving discipline in my life and I'll testify to your love for me Jesus rescues sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience but Josiah's actions don't just stop with with making this covenant uh, now we, we see in the next uh, few verses his his follow- through on this covenant so that is point number two reform of the land so we're going to read a Chunk here from verse 4 all the way down to 14 and see some of these reforms that Josiah brings about the the submission now, the the obedience that he carries out because of his love for the Lord. So, verse 4 And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the king of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations in all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Molech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. We see Josiah immediately begin putting his, his commitment and covenant to the Lord into action, Uh, It's very similar and and brings us back to the thoughts of what Hezekiah had done in his reforms. But it's just a reminder that at this moment we're seeing, even though Hezekiah had done many of these same things, his son had uh, overturned all of those things in in one generation, had rebuilt all of these high places, had gone back to sacrificing his own son toward Molech. Uh, We had seen him even put uh, altars to other gods inside of the, the temple and inside the courtyard of the temple. But Josiah begins... Uh, just approaching all these things, systematically tearing all of them down. Um, But we see one additional thing that Josiah does here that even Hezekiah had not done, and that's not just that he tears down the altars, but he defiles them. That his goal here is not just to to tear them down and get rid of them, but to do what he can to make sure that they're not going to come back. Uh, Because we had seen that they had come back pretty quickly after Hezekiah had died. So Josiah's focus is not just on the immediate problem, but even looking into the future of how do we make sure that this won't be a problem further down the road. This idea, though, of removing the high places from Geba to Beersheba, that's the northern and the southern parts of the the country of Judah. This is not just taking place in in Jerusalem and in the temple, but this is taking place throughout all the land of Judah. He is going around uh, seeking to remove all of these idols and altars that had been built in the last couple of generations. But we see that the reform does not just limit itself to the kingdom of Judah, but he actually extends into the former northern territory, uh, the northern kingdom. So keep reading in verse 15. It says, Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. These, Jeroboam was the first king of the split between the, the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah, and this was an altar in Bethel that had been there for almost 300 years. So we see not only are these reforms happening in the, the kingdom of Judah, but he's now extending this uh, reform into the, the northern kingdom. Um, keep going in verse 16, as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Now, what is that about? If you remember, it's been a while, but in 1 Kings 13, um, we had a, the story of a prophet that had confronted Jeroboam and had predicted that one day a man was going to come and was going to tear down that altar and, and burn the bones of the priests on it. And this is what it says in 1 Kings thirteen two: The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David." Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Almost 300 years later, this prophecy is being fulfilled, not just the actions, but down to the very name of the person who's carrying this out. This just reveals to us the the sovereignty of God in knowing what's happening, but, but carrying them out and bringing those things to pass. If we continue in in verse uh, 17, he said, What is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So after he finishes at Bethel, he travels further north, further into the kingdom of, uh, of the northern, of northern Israel and continues uh, his pursuit of reforming. And Samaria was the former capital of the northern kingdom. So we see his extent is not just in the kingdom of Judah, but this is reaching into the, the northern kingdom as well. Um, perhaps that's why he's described as one that, that no king like him before. Um, that even though Hezekiah had done similar things, that we see Josiah's uh, the extent of Josiah's reforms going beyond just the borders of Judah. But we see at the end of this, he returns back to Jerusalem. And it's one thing to tear down the idols and tear down the altars. Um, but we see him fulfilling uh, obedience to the the law, not just in the negative context of what he's removing, but now turning his focus and his attention towards the worship of God. He's addressed this issue of false worship that's in the land, but now he turns the, the, the nation's focus back to true worship. So verse 21, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah but in the 18th year of king Josiah this passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem so he focuses the attention not just on the negative but now returning the people to worship God the details aren't necessarily given here as to what makes this a passover unlike any that's been celebrated since the the days of the judges Um, But it is interesting to note, too, that this is taking place in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And remember, the book of the law had been found in the 18th year. So all of this travel throughout the, the kingdom of Judah, even extending into the northern territory, all of this is taking place in a very quick time. This is something that Josiah is taking immediate action upon in seeking to tear down all of these idols and turn the people back towards worship. He's certainly putting all of his heart, his soul, and his might into worshiping and serving God and bringing the people to do the same. And so I think this serves as an example for us as well as we consider are there idols in our lives that maybe we're just not putting all of our heart, soul, and might into destroying and removing. Uh, Maybe we take certain steps to tear down those altars and those those idols, um, but maybe we're just not doing enough. Maybe it's like what Hezekiah had done, where he just tore them down but didn't give consideration to how will they be rebuilt or can we just turn back to them. Uh, Maybe it's because we're just a little lazy. We don't want to put all our might into doing what it takes to get rid of these uh, idols and tear them down. Maybe it's because we have too high of a view of ourselves and we think that if we just remove that temptation, we'll just never go back to it again. Uh, Maybe it's um, because we're not entirely sure that we want to give it up. That we still want to have it there that if if we 're ever uh, enticed towards it that maybe we want to have that option to consider down the road, but I wonder what that might look like in our lives to to remove not just the the temptation and the idol but to do what we can to get rid of it so it won 't spring back. Uh, maybe it's the apps on our phones that tempt us to look at things that we shouldn 't or cause us to be considered with people 's opinion about us or themselves or the world or just the things that take our time and just distract our attention and our focus. Uh, Maybe we've tried to address that before by just deleting the app from our phone. But we can always just go back into the app store and download it again. So maybe that's not enough. Maybe it's completely deleting the account or having someone put uh, protection on our phone that would remove the app store so we can't download that app again in a moment of of weakness or boredom. Maybe it's a relationship uh, that we have that's just we know it's leading us toward trouble. Maybe it's just a, a relationship we shouldn't be entering into or it's just headed in the wrong direction and you know, maybe we commit to break that relationship off or we just unfriend them on our social media, but maybe that's just not enough. Maybe it's needing to get away from that individual because we know it's just not going a good place. Maybe that's quitting our job or changing our phone number so that they can't get back in, in contact with us. Maybe it's the, the money in our retirement account that that we think is going to provide the stability and security for us. and uh, Maybe instead of just uh, trying to commit to thinking about it less or not checking our bank account balance as much or being as concerned about what the stocks are doing on a daily basis, maybe we actually just need to give the money away and remove that temptation and give it to God to uh, rely more on Him to meet our daily needs. Maybe it's the time we spend watching TV or the things we're watching Instead of just putting a restriction on it to the screen time to not spend as much time on it or putting filters on things that we watch, maybe it's just completely canceling the subscription or canceling the cable or just getting rid of the TV from our home. Perhaps just like Josiah, we need to be a little more intentional with not just destroying the idols, but defiling those idols in our lives, making it so that we can't just run back to them at a a moment when it's convenient for us or when we're tempted Jesus rescues sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience. And as we faithfully submit to and obey God's word, we need to make sure that we're removing those idols from our lives. But we're not just on an idol crusade. We're not just seeking to get rid of the idols and those altars that would cause us to worship things besides God. We must return to worshiping God as well. So it's not just get rid of those, but it's come back and worship God replace those idols in our lives with the worship of the Lord. If we're not going to be replacing our idols with a worship of God, then we're going to find ourselves tempted to go back to those same idols or to manufacture other idols to take their place. And that leads us into the third point, the rescue of the lost. Read with me in verse 26. I'm going to read to the end of our passage in verse 30. "'Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath,' by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo and saw, and sorry, killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Even though we see Josiah's death in battle, uh, which would not be what we would define as peace, um, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that had been given towards him, that he was going to die before seeing the judgment that was coming upon the people. Um, so we see that in the end here, even after all of these reforms, even after this covenant, uh, ultimately Josiah still dies. We still see after all of this good that's, that's gone on in the land of tearing down these idols and altars, restoring the Passover, it still leads to God saying that he's going to remove Judah from their land. And again, maybe that's a little bit of how we feel sometimes, that we're doing all the things that we think that we need to do, that God has called us to do, tearing down those idols, seeking to worship him, and um, we feel like, then why isn't it changing things? Um, But the reality is that all these reforms of Josiah are pointing us to the reality that it's not his actions that are saving the nation. It's not his actions that are saving him. It's not the reforms of the kings that came before him. It's not any of those good works. It's not our our good efforts, our intentions, our uh, avoiding of sin that's going to rescue us. It's Jesus who rescues us so that we can respond with faithful submission and obedience. And that's important to keep in mind that even as we're called to respond with faithful submission and obedience, that that is not what causes our salvation. It's our salvation that causes us to respond with faithful submission and obedience. So just as we celebrated this morning, this is not a work that we do on our own. This salvation is not a message of saying faithfully submit and obey so that you can be saved. Uh, it points us to the reality that all of our good works will not redeem us. We need someone else to save us, and Jesus is the one who has done that for us. And I think this is a very fitting passage to consider on a day when we've just celebrated the Lord's Supper um, because this passage just points us to several of these realities of how we see um, this pointing towards Jesus' work in in accomplishing God's purposes and plans for the nation of Israel, but in our own lives as well. Just as Josiah had made a covenant between the people and the Lord, uh, and we, we see that that covenant is not what saves, we know that God has promised a new covenant, a covenant that is going to accomplish His, uh, the, uh, God's purpose and, and secure our eternal obedience. So if you want, turn over with me to Jeremiah 31, where we see God promised to us a new covenant. Um, unlike the one that Moses had made with the people that they had forsaken, unlike the one that Josiah had made with the people and between God that they eventually broke, um, but we see a new covenant that God is going to make. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, "...behold the days are coming," declares the Lord, "...when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah." Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity And I will remember their sin no more. That's a covenant that will not be conditioned upon whether or not the people obey, um, whether or not they do enough good things or whether they avoid the bad things. It's a covenant conditioned upon what God is doing for us. And just as we saw Josiah celebrating the Passover with the people, we see in, uh, in Luke, as Jesus celebrates the Passover the night before his crucifixion, we see Jesus institute this new covenant on our behalf. If we look at Luke chapter 22, I'm going to read from verses 17 to 20. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As Jesus institutes this new covenant for us, he points to his finished work on our behalf. It's not a matter of of our obedience, uh, our submission to God that, that conditions that. It's what he has done for us. Jesus rescues sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience. Jesus sets that example for us as he's headed to the cross right after celebrating the Passover with the disciples. As he's praying in the garden, his question is not to God, what's in this for me? His question is, or his prayer is, Father, your will be done. And so that's something I think to, for us to consider as, as we approach or, or challenge by God's word, as we're approaching those situations in our lives, not what's in it for me, but Lord, how can we glorify you through this? How can your will be accomplished? It's accomplished through Jesus rescuing sinners so they can respond with faithful submission and obedience. Josiah's actions were not enough to save the people from their sins. Our actions are not what saves us from our sins. It's what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. It's his perfect life. It's his death. It's his resurrection. It's him interceding at the right hand of the throne of God right now on our behalf that has purchased our our rescue and our salvation. And so let's respond to that as Jesus has rescued us to respond with faithful submission and obedience. Please pray with me in um, seeking that from the Lord. Lord, we thank you and praise you again for a passage that encourages us with the work that you accomplished in the heart of King Josiah, Lord, a passage that reminds us that this is not a work that King Josiah earned and did on his own. Lord, that it just points us towards the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we're thankful that this is a work that you are continuing to do in our own hearts as you've revealed Christ to us through your new covenant, Lord, that we would be able to say that that we know you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond with faithful submission and obedience, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to see the areas in our lives where we maybe are not submitting to you and your word. Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength um, to, to follow through on that, um, Lord, through, through the Spirit empowering us. Um, Lord, we pray that you would um, root out the idols that may still be in our hearts. Lord, that you would cause us to not just um, get rid of them, but Lord, do what we can to um, put them to death and completely remove them and, and eliminate the possibility that we might return to them. Lord, we pray that we would replace that with a worship for you. Lord, that it would all be conditioned upon a love for you. Um, Lord, that we would desire to, to seek your glory and your will above our own, or above asking what's in it for us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to respond with faithful submission and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.